You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Well, as y'all can tell, Pastor Charlie's not here. He's on the beach in tennis shoes. So that means we need to pray for him. But we've survived. We survived the Christmas season, yet another Christmas. Christmas is a holly jolly time. It's the best time of the year. Christmas is a a season filled with hot chocolate, a season filled with, with hot apple cider. It's a season filled with presents. I got a, a lovely air fryer that I'm going to use a lot in a, in a nice safe to store all my valuables in. Just great presents. We, a lot of people love receiving presents and giving presents, but Christmas is also a time of joy, a joy that came to the world as Emmanuel, God with us to save us from our sins. Christmas is a season of friends and family. I remember growing up, I would always look forward to my cousins coming over for Christmas. Christmas morning came and went, and I would sit by the window looking at the top of the road, eagerly awaiting their arrival, where the the great adventures would come. I remember times where we'd go out in the backyards in the woods, and we'd play our, our airsoft battles. I remember those times playing the Wii into the twinkling hours of the night, and the best of all, I remember riding bikes, scooters, skateboards, anything with wheels down the massive hill in front of my house. This hill was about 100 yards long at a 45-degree angle, and at the bottom of the hill, there was a cul-de-sac with a curb directly in front with houses on either side. These houses had driveways going up them, and when you'd go down, you'd reach a certain point. I'd call it the point of no return. As soon as you get to that point of no return, you had to veer off into grandmom's driveway on the left. If not, you're going to run into the curb. So we've been going at this for hours, me and my blue scooter, my cousin Daniel in his red scooter, one after the other, going down the hill, trying to reach new speeds. And eventually he got bored with his red scooter and goes in the garage to look for something new. And what does he find? He finds a bike, a yellow bike. And he asks, Christian, can I use this yellow bike? He's like, Daniel, go for it. It's yours. So he gets that yellow bike, hikes up to the top of this 100-yard hill, and he he goes down first. He starts pedaling with all his might, picking up speed, and all of a sudden his pedaling amounted to nothing because you know you get to a certain point, the pedaling does absolutely nothing. So he's going as fast as he can, and he gets to this point of no return. He's supposed to veer off to the left, go into grandma's driveway, but what does he do? He doesn't do that. He continues going straight. Right into the curb, he hits it, flies in the air, does a couple flips, and then lands on his back, letting out a big gasp. All the people behind him on the scooters are wondering, is he okay? Has he died? What has happened? But Daniel promptly jumped up, brushed off the dirt from his britches, laughed a little bit, and came straight to me. He goes, Christian, why didn't you tell me that the brakes didn't work? I said, well, Daniel... Honestly, I didn't know. But this isn't on me. This is on you. You knew the routine. You knew what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to veer off to the left at the point of no return. But what did you do, Daniel? 
you went straight. We were one. We were unified in our descent down the hill, but he deviated. He changed his route. And don't we do this as people a lot of times? God has this plan. God has this route, this guide that we are supposed to live by. But we, as as sinful humans, we deviate from that and we end up flipping up on ourselves. Today's message can be entitled, One with God. We are one with God. We as a people are one with God and we need to be individually one with God. We're going to be working out of Galatians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26, and we're going to bleed over into Galatians 4, going to verse 7. Now, the book of Galatians is written by Paul, and and Paul is intensely correcting this church of Galatia. And in the third chapter, verse 1, it says, you foolish Galatians. That's pretty strict. That's pretty harsh by Paul, but he is letting them have it. You Galatians need to get a grip. And in this passage that we're going to look at today, we see these two opposing forces going at each other. You have the Jews and the Gentiles, and Paul is trying to describe that we are all one with God, that there is no Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor Friedman. So Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. If you would, stand as you're able to for the reading of God's word. You see, we stand. People ask, why would we do this? But we stand out of reverence. We stand out of respect for God's word. This, the Bible isn't something that we worship, but it's the primary way that God is revealing himself to us. And in his presence, there is awe and reverence. So read with me starting in verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of our Lord. And Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful that as you use your word to teach us, to mold us, to transform us, our hearts, Lord. I pray for every person in the room that they will see you, they will know you, and be known by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to split this passage up into two sections. The first section can be called One in God. One 
in God. Humans are, are really good at dividing ourselves, aren't we? We have these sects, we have these divisions, these tribes, and we often are at odds with one another. But Paul begins this section of scripture by saying that we are all one. Verse 26 saying, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For we have all been baptized into Christ Jesus with Christ. You see, when we're baptized into faith with Christ, the old is gone and we are new. Because of the grace of Christ, all of us are made new and are made one with him. And when there's one with him, there's equality with him. But there's still schisms. There's still separation. And Paul, starting in verse 28, he starts to, to list out some of these schisms that we see that are still prevalent today. We see these three uh, schisms and mandates. He gives us a mandate. The first one is a cultural mandate. A cultural mandate. Paul, got, Paul here gives one of his most famous lines of equality, saying that there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Jew nor Gentile is illustrating this cultural tension that is found in the church of Galatia. The Jews were at odds with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were at odds with the Jews. The Jews uh, lived in strict to the letter of the law. They wanted to follow the rules. But the Gentiles, they were new to this thing called, called faith. They were new to God, so they didn't understand the law. They just understood what grace was. But Christ came. Christ came and he, he set us free from the law and he bonded us to him. Grace abounds. And the Gentiles were easy to understand this, but the Jews had lived their life in such a way that like, why would, why would we change how we live? And why can't they come into what we have? And Paul here is trying to, to prompt the Galatians to understand one another, understand one another's backgrounds, Understand where we're coming from. You see, as we as humans are, are really good at seeing otherness. We see otherness and we're not comfortable with it. Other cultures, other people, other backgrounds, but we want to stick in our lane. We want to put our blinders up into what we know, what we feel, what we understand. And the church isn't exempt from this. The church is not exempt from this feeling. Because how many times have we heard in a church setting, oh, that church, this service, it was too contemporary. Oh, this church, this service, it was too traditional. It's too liturgical. It's too modern. We want to stick into our own comfort zone, our own preferences. But what if, what if we see God's image more living in the otherness of the world. Christ is still present in the otherness because we are all one. All cultures come together. And we get to celebrate our differences because we are made one in God. We have a cultural mandate. Living in otherness is difficult. There's tensions. It's hard. But because of the grace that Christ has bestowed to us, we must live in it. So we have a cultural mandate. Second one is a, a sexual mandate, a sexual mandate. There's neither male nor female. 
from the beginning of time, the fall of Adam and Eve, there is a separation of male and female. And God, over the course of history, has been redeeming that separation. And when Christ came, it is supposed to come together as one. But, but our flesh will get in the way, right? We'll want to, to keep that separation. A lot of uh, societies and, and people will try to keep one of the gender sexes down and, and subjugation to, to what they know, how they've always lived. But in Christ, there's one. There's neither male nor female. There's this theologian who gives this quote about the church in America today and how this can be lived out, this schism of, of the sexual mandate. It says this, For those of you who are in Christ, antagonism, Criticism, snide remarks, subtle insinuations, and overt prejudices must end. For in him, male and female are one. I know for me, when I read that, I, I'm immediately convicted. Because how many times have I made those subtle insinuations? How many times have I made overt accusations to, to the women that are in my life? But yet Christ's grace abounds. We are called to live as one. We are called to lift up one another. So we have this cultural mandate, living in the otherness of the world, recognizing differences and coming together as one. We have this sexual mandate that male and female were created together, but because of the Father separated and Christ is redeeming us, bringing us together as one. And the third one, is the social mandate, the social mandate. Our worth is not based on our social status. Our worth is not based upon how much money we have. Our worth is not based off our influence. Our worth is not based off the successes that we've had. Our worth is solely based off of what God sees us as. And he sees us as his children. He sees us as his but as we live our lives, we let these outside influences redirect our line of thought of other people. We see people in the upper class and we think they might be snooty. We see people in, in poverty and we look down upon them. But Christ is calling us to bring each other together. You see, as the church, we do a good job of reaching out to the poor and seeing the needs in, in those communities. And that's all good and right. But at the same time, we see this need to reach out to those with physical needs. But I was talking to a buddy the other day, and, and I was talking about there are people temporarily homeless. But what about the people that are eternally homeless? The people that live with a lot of success in this world. People that have a lot of money, a lot of influence, a lot of power. With all of those things, it's easy to cover up the brokenness inside of us. With all those things, it's easy to cover up all the, the bad things in our lives, but they are just in need of the grace of Christ as those that are, are temporarily homeless. We as a church need to extend grace to everybody, to those who physically need, but also to those who are in eternal need. And that can look in multiple different ways. But our worth is not based on our social status. We see this illustrated in, 
in Christ's um, story of the Good Samaritan. You have this man in Jerusalem, and he travels down the road to Jericho. And when he's traveling down, he falls among robbers. When he falls among robbers, he's on the side of the road, and three people come and walk past him. You had the priest, the elite, the, the religious hierarchy, walks by and avoids them. The Levite, the worshiper, he's the pastor who walks by and avoids them. Then you have the Good Samaritan. Samaritan man, someone that is lowly, someone that is rejected by society, walks by and extends a hand because he recognized the oneness in God, that there is one, we are one in God. So we have the cultural mandate, we have the sexual mandate, and we have the social mandate. A few years ago, I went on this mission service trip to Texas. It was called Project One. 27. There's about 30 of us that went on this trip. 10 of the people were, were competent, were, were experts in, in uh, fixing things and building things. And our task was to, to build this pavilion. It was going to have electrical piping. It was going to have all the gadgets and gizmos. And that was our job for the week. 10 of the people were experts and knew what to do. 10 of the people were so-so. And the, uh, the last 10 knew nothing. They were completely incompetent. And those incompetent people were called the youth, right? And it was my job, my job to, to, to look after and be with the youth, and I was just as incompetent as the rest of them. So there we were. The first day, we're clearing out the place to put the pavilion. We get all the stuff ready, um, and as we're doing this, we have the trencher that's digging the electrical line to the outlet. And as it's digging the electrical line, it hits something, and it gives up, peters out. So we know the trencher's done, but there's 15 more yards to go. But the last thing that the trencher did faithfully was bust the sewage line. So now there's sewage water spewing up and getting all in the trench. And who do the competent people give to dig the rest of that trench? The incompetent people. So there we go, getting the the job that no one wants. We get our shovels and we start digging. We dig five yards. 10 yards, eventually we finish and we are filthy. We feel disgusting. We're miserable. But what a great example of serving. Am I right? Amen. But there we were, miserable. And I called my mom that night. I said, Mom, um, I feel awful. I feel, this is is the worst. We're digging the sewage water in 118 degree Texas weather. I want to come home. Then she asked me, are you having a good time? I guess so. The people are good. Uh, But that's the first day. Second day, we start building this garden around the pavilion. And you start to see the people that know what they're doing, bringing alongside the people that didn't know, the incompetent people, showing them what to do, how to to put this in, how to develop the pipes, whatever the the task might have been. They walked alongside us the third day that continued. The fourth day, it was the same. And then the last day, they were there. The pavilion was being put up. And the competent people stepped aside. And they let the incompetent people put the shingles on the roof, trusting that they would get the job done, for they had been shown what to do. It's a simple story. At the beginning, we see this separation of the group between competent and incompetent. But by the end of the week we saw this this cohesion, this cohesion of togetherness, that we were one. We had gone down to build a pavilion 
At the beginning, we didn't do it together. But by the end, we were one. We were a unit. And just how this story of of bringing those 30 people together as one, we the church are one in God. We need to recognize where we are at, recognize people, recognize cultures, differences, and that Christ has called us all together. Christ has called us to be one. So we have one in God. The second point today is one of God's. Not only are we one in God, we are one of God's. Recognizing that we are one in God becomes easier when we know that we are all one of God's. So the text here continues going into chapter 4, and it's speaking of these, or trying to prove his stances here, these, these separations, these cultural mandates. He's trying to prove why this matters. What is the purpose of all these mandates that he's trying to give? And he gives us three observations. The first one found in verses one through three can be entitled, we were enslaved. We were enslaved. We were in the bondage of slavery, but now we are free. We are in the bondage of these separations between male and female, between Jew and Gentile, between slave and freedman, but now we are are free. But what exactly is freedom? We use this word a lot in in American culture. We love freedom. Land of the free, home of the brave, freedom from sea to shining sea. But what exactly is freedom? I want to give us a working definition of what freedom is. Freedom is the absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice or action. The absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice or action. So what does this mean? This means we have the ability to choose what we do and do not do. We have the ability to choose what we want to be a part of and what we don't want to be a part of. You think about this, is this truly freedom? Is simply the ability to choose where freedom is found? There's this famous poem called Invictus, and it's trying to illustrate this freedom to be yourself, and it says this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. You see here, the world is coming down on him, and he feels like he can persevere. He continues saying this. In the fell clutch of circumstance... I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This poem sounds good. This poem sounds like, I can do this. I I am the, the master of my fate. I have the ability to control my destiny. We want to have the power, the autonomy to choose. But when we look at who Christ is and how Christ made us, it doesn't line up with what 
this says. Dear friends, we cannot conquer. The Christ came in the world and he is giving us grace and, and begging us to come to him for we are addicted to sin. Our flesh is, is turning us towards sin and we can't escape it without Christ. People will think about you have the ability to choose what you want to do, what you can do. And you think of an addict, someone that's addicted to alcoholism. Um, they have the ability to choose to drink or not to drink, but they are bound, they are in slavery, in bondage to that substance. It is only found in Christ. Freedom is only found in Christ. And here's a, another poem that can be entitled Invictus Redeemed. Invictus Redeemed, this is what it says. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate, he cleared from punishments the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the master of my soul. See, when we compare these two poems, one is trying to conquer the world alone. And how sad is that? How sad is thinking that you can overcome all the darkness? You alone can conquer the world. But right here, we see in Invictus Redeemed that in Christ, when Christ is the master of our fate, when Christ is the master of our soul, we are set free. Going back to the, the context of when this was written, the Judaizers were obsessed with the law. You can consider it the ABCs of the world. If you do right, you're, you're going to live good. If you do wrong, you're going to be punished. And we often think the same thing. If I do right, I'm good. If I do wrong, uh, something bad is going to happen. But that's not how grace works. That's not how Christ's grace is, is present with us today. Grace is found when we recognize there is nothing that we can do. All we can do is submit to Christ and say that, Christ, you are the conqueror of my soul. So we were enslaved, but we find freedom in him. The second one is that we are made sons and daughters. We are made sons and daughters. What does that mean to be a son? In the biblical times, sons and daughters were separated, and the sonship is what the, Paul is trying to portray here. And what it means to be a son is three things. The first one is that you recognize Abba. You recognize Abba Father, someone that you're intimate with, someone that you respect. And the last one is someone that you imitate. Now this Abba Father, we hear it a lot of the times in church, and we, we think it means Daddy, Father, this, this great bond that you have, and that's true. But what's lost in the translation oftentimes is that our Father also means respect and admiration. 
It was custom in the Jewish times that saying Abba, Father, meant that you never disagreed with Abba. You always went along with what Abba said. And when we would take that in our relationship with God, we recognize that he knows us, he loves us, he cares for us, but we respect him, honor him, and we submit to all his ways and how he is guiding and leading our lives. And in the same way, as we are doing this, we're getting intimate with him and then we begin imitating him. There's an apprenticeship that forms within this relationship. When I was growing up, my dad would always take me outside in the backyard and we'd fix cars. First time we, we fixed brakes, I was completely lost. I knew nothing about brakes. No, I, I, I had no idea what I was doing. But he sat beside me. I sat on the stool and he started working on it and I touched nothing. I didn't touch a ratchet. I didn't touch a brake pad. I didn't touch the grease that you put on the back side of it. I just sat there and watched, learning at the side of my father. Next time we went out there to change brakes, I sat on that stool, watched him do it, and then he let me have the ratchet and let me spin it a couple times. Next time we went out, he let me take more control. And by the end of this, this adventure of fixing a brake, my dad had, had almost cut his thumb off. So he was completely unable to do anything. He takes me outside and he's sitting on the stool. He says, Christian, you're going to change the brakes. So there I was, thinking I knew what to do, and he just sat there and watched. Didn't say a word. I spun that ratchet. I put those brake pads on. I put the tire back on the car, and we went driving, and I just thought as soon as I went down, I was not going to be able to stop. But what do you know? The Lord is gracious. I stopped. Those brakes worked. But if I had not sitting beside my dad, imitating what he did with those breaks, I would have never been able to do it. And just as I had to sit beside my dad, we too need to sit beside our heavenly father, our Abba, who is intimate with us, who we respect, and we can imitate him and grow into the likeness of God. So we were enslaved, but in him there is freedom. We are not bound to the law, but bound to Christ. We are made sons and daughters. And the last point today is that we are made heirs. We are made heirs. What do we inherit? When we think of inheritance, we think of our allotment, our portion. But what in the kingdom, in the economy of God do we inherit? And it's simply this, we get to inherit God. We get to inherit God in everything that he has, the entire world. When people are describing heaven, they oftentimes describe the pearly gates, the streets of gold, they'll be singing, they'll be dancing. And there's this one class at Lee where it was entitled Heaven and Hell, the theology of heaven and hell. And they started out the class by, let's just describe heaven. So for 30 to 45 minutes, they just described heaven. And after that time, the teacher looked and said, we're forgetting an important detail. They had all the streets of gold, the pearly gates, but what did they forget? They forgot God. What if heaven isn't just the pearly gates, isn't just something that's magnificent, but it's simply being in the presence of God. 
simply being beside him, worshiping him in full gladness and joy, we get to inherit God. Everything on the earth is God's. If that is our inheritance, that can be used to serve you, to give you joy, to enhance your connection with him. So in everything that we do, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, no matter what you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Everything can be used to serve him, to walk under him, to walk as one of his. Jesus often Maybe not often, but he told this story in the Bible. And it was of this father and these two sons. And these, these two sons were going to give, give him their entire portion. And one of the sons wanted it early. So he got his portion early and he ran off and he squandered it. Gambling, um, living vicariously, trying to uh, get to all the pleasures of the world. And he eventually reached rock bottom. He realized that he was eating from the same place that the pigs were eating. He realized, my, the servants that serve with my, my dad, they, they're treated better than this. I want to go and be one of his servants. So he runs back. And when he gets to the edge of his property, his father sees him, lifts up his robes, and runs out to meet him. Welcoming, home, welcoming him home with a big hug, taking his ring off, putting it on his finger, and throwing a feast in his honor. In this story, we also see the brother that stayed, and he's resentful. Brother of the state is, is not very happy that his father welcomed the, the prodigal son back home. And when we look at this story, we can see ourselves in both the son that went away and the son that stayed. The son that went away, we recognize that we are wanderers, that there's this great divide within ourselves that can only be filled with God. This great divide, this great gap that can only be filled with the grace of Christ. And when we come and sit under him, that gap is filled. But also the brother that stayed. We can walk the walk. We can talk the talk. We can do everything right, but our hearts are coarse. We look down on people. We, we think we're loving, but really we're fulfilling our own desires and our own intentions. You see, for me, I, I see both of, in, in myself. I've wandered. I've gone away. And I've also looked at people and, and had that judging, judging feeling. But we need to recognize as the church, we need to constantly sit up under Christ, recognizing that we are all one in him, that we are all one of his. In result, we are one with God. So Lord, we come before you today. Grateful for your word. Grateful for your presence. And Lord, let our hearts be pure. Let us learn from you. Let us live for you. Lord, let us feel your love, a love that we can't understand. But we thank you for the grace that you freely give, the grace that sets us free, the grace that makes us 
a son and a daughter, a grace that gives us an inheritance. Lord, in everything we do, let it be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. So I invite you to stand with me. We're gonna have our time of, of dedication, time of movement. And this side of the altar, your right side, this is a time where you can come before the Father, before Abba Father, and recognize the chasm within you, the need to be bound to Christ. But Lord, I need you, and we can seek the face of the Father on this side. And on the, the other side, we can link, lend, borrow faith with one another because Christ has given us each other. The body of Christ to represent him. Lift one another up. If you need prayer, if you have a need of any sort, you can be lifted and lend and have faith lended to you. We always have communion on the left and on the right. I invite you to move. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.